Hey folks, welcome back. It's Nico here. A few weeks ago, my wife and I welcomed our second son into the world. So I'm spending the next couple of weeks on paternity leave, hanging with my newborn, trying my best to prevent my toddler from inadvertently killing him. As a result of my leave from duty, though, I am turning the podcast back over to my colleague, Tyler McQueen. Last year on Constitution Day, you might recall that Tyler hosted episode 170 for us. It was called Free Speech and the American Founding, and in it, Tyler explores how the American conception of free speech came to be, looking at it from the colonial era on through to the ratification of the Bill of Rights. Now, on today's episode, Tyler fasts forward a few decades to look at how 19th century pro-slavery advocates in America used many forms of censorship, sometimes violent mob censorship, to maintain their status quo, and how as a result of this censorship, abolitionists like John Quincy Adams, William Lloyd Garrison, Frederick Douglass, and others became some of America's most vocal and eloquent free speech advocates. This is a stirring, even emotional story that highlights some of the most important and tragic moments from American history. I learned a lot from it. I hope you enjoy it. Now let's get on to the show. Freedom of speech. Fundamental rights. Freedom of uh, conscience. Academic freedom. Freedom of press. And the right to listen. You're listening to So To Speak, the free speech podcast, brought to you by FIRE, the foundation for individual rights and expression. December 18, 1835 was a typical day in the United States Congress. On that day, William Jackson, representative from the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, rose on the House floor to present a petition calling for the immediate abolition of slavery in the District of Columbia. Motions such as this were common among northern politicians aiming to please their constituents back home. What we think of as the abolitionist movement really kicks off in kind of full steam in the 1830s. And one of the forms it takes is petitions to Congress. This is Damon Root, a writer at Freethink and the author of A Glorious Liberty, Frederick Douglass and the Fight for an Anti-Slavery Constitution. Anti-slavery groups, abolitionist groups, Quaker groups are sending petitions to Congress uh, saying abolish slavery in Washington, D.C. Your Congress, you have the power to do that, praying for the abolition of, of slavery. And uh, the, the right to petition the government for redress of grievances is there in the First Amendment. So this is a constitutional right that these, uh, that these anti-slavery activists and abolitionists are exercising. So these petitions kind of really come start pouring into Congress in the 1830s especially. It happens before then, but that's, it's really, really hitting full steam in the 1830s. But what happened on December 18, 1835 was unprecedented. In a motion never before seen on the House floor, James Henry Harrison of South Carolina moved that Jackson's petition not be received. Emboldened, several other Southern representatives stood up to second the motion. The shock and anger were immediate, and the debate over whether or not to accept the petition dragged on for five months. In the end, the petition was denied, and Congress adopted a resolution that would later become known as the Gag Rule which prevented any abolitionist petitions from being presented or discussed on the Congress floor. Congress is full of pro-slavery representatives, representatives of slaveholding states who, who are staunchly, violently pro-slavery, and they just have a kind of a collective freakout 
about these petitions. In the mid-1830s, Congress passes something, the House of Representatives and the Senate does the same called the, the gag rule, which says that, that these petitions will not be received by Congress. They're essentially sort of tabled. We're not going to acknowledge them. There's going to be no debate on them, no discussion. Uh, the representatives and senators are gagged or prevented from speaking about these petitions. So this huge fight about free speech and abolishing slavery is just raging in Congress at the time. And the, for the, the slaveholders, their position is that these are incendiary pamphlets. These, these are stirring up slave revolts. They are, they are uh, violating state laws, which, which prevent anyone but the master, the, the enslaver, from speaking to the slave with, you know, without, without their permission. And you're sort of talking to the slaves through these. And, and they see it as this, as this threat to this sort of this whole social social order. Um, and in a way, correctly, they kind of correctly recognize the, the, the power of these ideas, these anti-slavery ideas and their spread. And so they're trying to stamp them out. And so the, the, the authority they have in Congress is to, is to silence this debate. The following year, in defiance of the gag rule, Representative John Quincy Adams of Massachusetts presented the House Speaker with a petition written by 22 enslaved people. With that, all hell broke loose. House members realized that if enslaved people possessed the right to petition, which was protected in the First Amendment, what other constitutional rights did they have? It was a line of thinking that, when pondered by Southern politicians, led to a dangerous and society-altering conclusion, and Adams knew it. The great John Quincy Adams, a former president of the United States, son of the former president, uh, John Adams, son of, a of Abigail Adams, you know, has this incredible pedigree and this rare sort of second act in American politics where presidents normally disappear from the stage, maybe reluctantly so, but they disappear. Adams, he sticks around. He, uh, he goes to Congress as a, uh, as a representative from Massachusetts, and he leads the fight against the gag rule. And he recognizes that, you know, when you try to silence speech, what you really do is you add fuel to the speaker's fire. You provoke more speech. And he says, he says, listen, you know, you, you, you guys, you say you don't want to have discussion about slavery. That's why you're gagging these petitions. Well, what's going to happen? We're going to discuss slavery. We're going to be discussing these petitions. You say they're incendiary. Well, every speech that anyone north of the Mason-Dixon line makes in Congress is going to be an incendiary speech. And what's going to happen? You're going to have more talk about slavery, and that's precisely what happens. In response, the Dixie-dominated government adopted a resolution stating that enslaved people did not possess the First Amendment right to petition. Years later, a man recalled hearing about the petition as a teenager, while he was enslaved less than 100 miles from the nation's capital, on the eastern shore of Maryland. I well remember getting possession of a speech by John Quincy Adams, made in Congress about slavery and freedom, and reading it to my fellow slaves. What joy and gladness it produced to know that so great, so good a man was pleading for us, and further, to know that there was a large and growing class of people in the North called abolitionists who were moving to our freedom. Swing love, sweet. This man was Frederick Douglass. In the coming years, Douglass would take his place among that class of people in the North called abolitionists. And in doing so, he would become arguably the most famous advocate for free speech in American history. 
Douglas's notoriety on both sides of the Atlantic coincided with the escalating conflict between abolitionists and pro-slavery factions at the state and federal levels. And at the heart of this debate over human freedom was the suppression of free speech and the free press. Coming for to carry me In the four decades since the adoption of the Bill of Rights, the question of what to do with American slavery had reached a frustrating stalemate. The road to abolition first proved promising, with the passing of the Northwest Ordinance in 1787 and the banning of the international slave trade in 1808. But while the North had been gradually abolishing slavery since 1776, the practice was expanding in the South after the patenting of the cotton gin. With unmatched efficiency, the cotton gin could remove cotton fibers from the seeds, a tedious and painstaking task when performed by human hands. The increase in cotton production meant a greater need for labor, however, and the nation's slave population tripled as the demand for cotton exploded. The newfound wealth lulled the South into contentment, becoming less enthusiastic about the prospects of emancipation. In time, Southern states began to reject and censor all thoughts of abolition even going so far as to impose the death penalty for the circulation of pamphlets advocating for abolition or emancipation. It was typically criminalized to teach enslaved people how to read. This is Jakob Michingama, executive director of the Future of Free Speech Project at Vanderbilt University, senior fellow at FIRE, and the author of the book Free Speech, a history from Socrates to social media. Censorship and ruthless suppression of free speech was part and parcel of slavery. It was one thing for, you know, in the war uh, logic of slavery to enforce censorship and suppression of the enslaved because they were your property. They were chattel and you could do with them whatever you pleased. So no one saw it, I think, as a suppression of free speech. White people uh, in the North, that's a, that's, a, that's a different phenomenon. And there you, you see some pretty astounding instances of hypocrisy. So you take, for instance, Virginia, which in, in June of 1776 uh, had approved the, the first and most famous state declaration of rights, which affirmed that press freedom was restrained only by despotic governments. Uh, and it was also in Virginia where Madison and Jefferson had, had led the fight against the Sedition Act back in, in 1798. But then in 1836, uh, Virginia, and this is a good example, criminalized publications that were intent on, quote, persuading persons of color to rebel or denying the right of masters to property in their slaves and inculcating the duty of resistance to such right. So in other words, if you circulated or wrote pamphlets or other writings in Virginia that spread the idea that slavery was evil, that it was against the laws of God, or that it should simply be uh, abolished, well, that was now a crime. And Southern politicians weren't content with only censoring abolitionists below the Mason-Dixon. In 1835, when the gag rule was passed in the Congress, Vice President John C. Calhoun proposed a Senate bill prohibiting the post office from receiving, mailing, or delivering all publications on the subject of slavery. Pamphlets were being circulated. So uh, you have to think of the postal service as sort of the internet of, of the day. So if you wanted, if you were living in New York and you wanted to reach a Southern audience, you'd write a 
pamphlet or and you'd mail it to the south and so southerners wanted to stop that they wanted an obligation for postmasters to stop the circulation of abolitionist writings and materials to the south outside of legislative halls abolitionists had to defend themselves often against mob violence in illinois elijah lovejoy the editor of the anti-slavery paper alton observer died trying to fend off a mob hell-bent on destroying his printing press. In Cincinnati, a pro-slavery mob destroyed the press of the newspaper Philanthropist, burnt a week's run of its papers, and then went after its owner. These acts of mob violence across the country turned even the most vehement anti-abolitionist Northerners into abolitionists nearly overnight. Free speech is, a, is like an origin story for several really important figures in the anti-slavery fight. So uh, one, one example is, is Garrett Smith, who is a, uh, he's a wealthy New York state landowner, and he's a major philanthropist supporting uh, abolitionism. He supports William Lloyd Garrison. He, he supports Frederick Douglass, financially backs Douglass. When Douglass strikes out on his own, starts the North Star, his first newspaper. Uh, Garrett Smith's involved in the formation of the Liberty Party, uh, uh, an abolitionist political party. And, and Garrett Smith is an ideas man himself also. And Smith... He is, he's, he's anti-slavery, but kind of a moderate, you would say. And then he attends in Utica, New York, an anti-slavery convention. He's not a member. He just kind of is an interested citizen who attends. And this pro-slavery mob breaks it up. I mean, they, they, they're, they're shouting down the speakers. They're attacking people, you know, this sort of mob violence to, to silence abolitionist voices. And Garrett Smith is basically radicalized by this. He's, he becomes a radical abolitionist in response to this. So he invites everybody back to Peterborough, New York, about 30 or so miles away where he lives. And he says, you come to Peterborough. I'm going to we're going to I'm going to host this convention and and people are going to be able to speak freely. We're going to have free discussion of slavery. And he gives this, this this rousing speech there where he talks about how slavery cannot survive the free discussion of it. So you see this sort of again and again. And just one more example of that is the great uh, Ohio anti-slavery lawyer, Salmon P. Chase, future chief justice of the United States. He was sort of moderately anti-slavery. And there were these mobs in Ohio uh, literally trying to destroy the printing presses of abolitionist publishers. And he, and he threw himself into the fight. To the east in Philadelphia, Angelina Grimke was heckled and pelted with stones while speaking at the newly opened Pennsylvania Hall. In my conversation with Jakob for this episode, he told me Angelina's story as a female abolitionist in the 19th century and her evolution from the daughter of a plantation owner to one of the most successful abolitionists of her time. Angelina Gremke, uh, who was a, a daughter of a South Carolina slave owner who came to view slavery as, as basically inconsistent with her, her strong Christian beliefs. And so she and her sister toured the North talking about the evils of slavery. So in 1837 in Massachusetts alone, she spoke at 88 meetings in 67 towns, reaching an estimated 40,000 people and persuading 20,000 women to sign anti-slavery petitions. And, and Grimke became the first woman in America to address a legislative body when she spoke against slavery in, uh, in the Massachusetts State House in, in 1838. The day after Angelina's speech, a mob numbering 10,000 people burnt down the newly built Pennsylvania Hall. The police stood silently and did nothing. This was the world that Frederick Douglass escaped to only four months later, 
on September the 3rd, 1838. He was roughly 21 years of age when he made his escape, boarding a northbound train to Baltimore. Under the guise of a free, black Navy officer, Douglas arrived in New York City less than 24 hours later by way of Wilmington and Philadelphia. Finally, he and his wife Anna settled down in New Bedford, Massachusetts. It was while living there in Massachusetts that Douglas was introduced to abolitionist thinkers, such as his political mentor, William Lloyd Garrison. Perhaps the most famous abolitionist of his time, Garrison was also among the most notorious. Prickly, domineering, and unliked even by his closest friends and allies, Garrison called for unconditional emancipation, even at the cost of the Union itself. In his own words, it was a contract with the devil and an agreement from hell. William Lloyd Garrison, I think, was the most famous abolitionist in the United States, if not the world. And he came to fame as a, an editor of a newspaper called The Liberator, which had a lot of mottos and slogans in the header. Uh, but uh, the most famous or infamous one is no union with slaveholders. This is Lucas Morrell the John K. Boardman Jr. Professor of Politics and the head of the politics department at Washington and Lee University. Because he was a pacifist, he thought that the only way to produce moral reform, and in this case, the, the peak of moral reform is abolishing slavery uh, immediately in the United States, uh, was that you could only use words. Uh, you could only speak or write to produce conviction in the heart of someone who is doing wrong, in this case, a slaveholder. And so by publishing his paper, The Liberator, uh, William Lloyd Garrison was trying to affect a change in public opinion with regards to slavery in the United States. Frederick Douglass, the most famous man to escape slavery, he um, bought into this idea that you could only produce abolition through the use of words, speaking and writing them. And as you well know, uh, anyone who reads anything by Frederick Douglass recognizes that that guy very soon became a master of what we fondly refer to as the King's English. Later in his career, he will be known as old man eloquent, and it's because of his use of words. So in short, Garrison was Douglass's uh, mentor. And uh, unfortunately, over time, Douglass felt constrained by his mentor and, and white abolitionists in particular who were organizing these speaking tours because they wanted him simply to uh, uh, bear witness to the harms of slavery rather than make arguments in his own, uh, from his own soul and his own mind with regards to the evils of slavery. They just wanted him uh, to talk about life on the plantation, as it were. And it was uh, hard for him because he wanted to speak the king's English and they wanted him to sound more like someone, uh, if you will, fresh off the plantation. At first, Douglas agreed with Garrison's assessment that the Constitution was inherently pro-slavery. But as time progressed, Douglas's views on the matter changed. In a speech titled, What to the Slave is the Fourth of July, Douglas publicly refuted his mentor's radical anti-Constitution sentiments. The Constitution was not anti-slavery. In that instrument I hold, there is neither warrant, license, nor sanction of the hateful thing. But, interpreted as it ought to be interpreted, the Constitution is a glorious liberty document. Read its preamble. Consider its purposes. Is slavery among them? Is it at the gateway? 
Or is it in the temple? It is neither. And he breaks with William Lloyd Garrison over this. Very publicly, very bitterly. Garrison calls him a, basically a sellout, says you're only doing this because you're taking Garrett Smith's money, all these like, really nasty charges. Um, you know, Douglas had been, these guys had, you know, they'd, they'd risked life and limb together. They'd been on, they shared the stage. They'd shared these humble lodgings on the road, all these things. And he's, he's hurt. He's deeply hurt by these attacks. But at the same time, he's, you know, he grapples with these ideas. He comes to his own conclusions. He said, this is what I believe. You know, the idea that anybody's sort of questioning his integrity is really laughable to me. And Garrison is really comes across poorly in that exchange. You know, Garrison is a is very admirable. It's a heroic figure in American history in many ways. You know, you can't like downplay his contributions, but but boy, he he's not not looking too good in the in this break with with Douglas at all. And then, you know, and then by the time of the Civil War, Garrison essentially comes around to the Douglas point of view. Suddenly he's kind of supporting the war effort and all these things, you know, his, his, his views change. Um, and um, so it's, yeah, it's a very nasty break between the two of them, but Douglas doesn't look back, you know, he's on this new path. The constitution is a weapon, is a glorious Liberty document and, and let's use it to, to fight slavery. Douglas's newfound ideological liberation propelled him to the front of the abolitionist movement, writing and speaking with great success on both sides of the Atlantic. To Douglas, as it was to the countless abolitionists who came before him, free speech was the most effective weapon in the crusade to end slavery. In an 1854 speech regarding the proposed Kansas-Nebraska Act, Douglas reminded his friends and enemies alike why free speech matters in a democratic society. To utter one groan or scream for freedom in the presence of the Southern advocate is to bring down the frightful lash upon their quivering flesh. I knew this suffering people. I am acquainted with their sorrows. I am one with them in experience. I have felt the lash of the slave driver and stand up here with all the bitter recollections of its horrors vividly upon me. There are special reasons, therefore, why I should speak and speak freely. The right of speech is a very precious one, especially to the oppressed. To Douglas, the right to free speech was essential not for those in power, but for those who were not. If the enslaved could not speak for themselves, then Frederick Douglass would speak for them. And he did so for decades, as the sectional tensions continued to rise. He believed that freedom of speech was the most important freedom in order to maintain one's liberty. He argued that um, when you read the founders, you'll find that that was important to them. And again, freedom of speech for him is tied to freedom of uh, assembly, that is to say, uh, the right of the people peaceably to assemble, right? He doesn't want uh, an assembly that becomes a mob. Again, an assembly that becomes a mob undermines the whole purpose of freedom of speech. For him, freedom of speech is an expression of the freedom of the human mind. And if the mind is free to think, that is a mind that is free to improve its thinking. It is a mind that is free to, uh, if you will, consider diversity of opinions and expressions of thought. And that's when, as a human being, um, under the right conditions, right? Not under a mob situation, but in a peaceful conversation with one's neighbor or group of neighbors, again, as long as it's a, peaceably, uh, a peaceable assembly, uh, the freedom to change one's mind, to move from mere opinion about something 
to true knowledge of the thing, a consideration of all views, and then determining which views are better than others, more prudent than others, wiser than others. Um, For Douglas, that was what he called the great moral renovator of a society. This is how you um, improve the, that, that even if you've made gains in your liberty, you can always make more. On November 6, 1860, Abraham Lincoln made history when he was elected the nation's first Republican president. An anti-slavery politician, Lincoln won only 40% of the popular vote and was not even included on the ballot in most Southern states. Fearing that the institution of slavery was on the road to extinction, South Carolina and several other southern states declared their intention to secede from the Union. It was a time of great peril for the nation. It was in this political climate that Frederick Douglass and a group of fellow abolitionists met at the Tremont Temple Baptist Church in Boston on December the 3rd, 1860. It was the one-year anniversary of the death of John Brown, whose attempted slave insurrection at Harper's Ferry, Maryland threw the nation into a panic. The topic of discussion that evening was how can slavery be abolished? Douglas's small abolitionist gathering was greeted by a violent mob, which took the stage and shouted down the meeting. The city's mayor and police department stood by and did nothing. Six days later, on December the 9th, Douglas delivered a lecture at Boston's Music Hall, and before adjourning for the evening, ended with an impassioned oratory on the free exchange of ideas. It might be the most important defense of free speech in American history. Even in Boston, the moral atmosphere is dark and heavy. The principles of human liberty, even if correctly apprehended, find but limited support in this hour of trial. The world moves slowly, and Boston is much like the world. We thought the principle of free speech was an accomplished fact. Here, if nowhere else, we thought the right of the people to assemble and to express their opinion was secure. But here we are today, contending for what we thought we gained years ago. The mortifying and disgraceful fact stares us in the face, that though Fanwell Hall and Bunker Hill monuments stand, freedom of speech is struck down. No lengthy detail of facts is needed. They are already notorious far more so than will be wished ten years hence. No right was deemed by the fathers of the government more sacred than the right of speech. It was in their eyes, as in the eyes of all thoughtful men, the great moral renovator of society and government. Daniel Webster called it a home-bred right, a fireside privilege. Liberty is meaningless where the right to utter one's thoughts and opinions has ceased to exist. That, of all rights, is the dread of tyrants. It is the right which they first of all strike down. They know its power. Thrones, dominions, principalities, and powers, founded in injustice and wrong, are sure to tremble if men are allowed to reason of righteousness, temperance, and of a judgment to come in their presence. Slavery cannot tolerate free speech. Five years of its exercise would banish the auction block and break every chain in the South. They will have none of it there, for they have the power. But shall it be so here? There can be no right of speech where any man, however lifted up, or however humble, however young, or however old, is overawed by force and compelled to suppress his honest sentiments. 
equally clear is the right to hear. To suppress free speech is a double wrong. It violates the rights of the hearer as well as those of the speaker. It is just as criminal to rob a man of his right to speak and hear as it would be to rob him of his money. I have no doubt that Boston will vindicate this right, but in order to do so, there must be no concessions to the enemy. When a man is allowed to speak because he is rich and powerful, it aggravates the crime of denying the right to the poor and humble. The principle must rest upon its own proper basis, and until the right is accorded to the humblest as freely as to the most exalted citizen, the government of Boston is but an empty name, and its freedom a mockery. A man's right to speak does not depend upon where he was born or upon his color. The simple quality of manhood is the solid basis of the right, and there let it rest forever. Um, slavery cannot tolerate freedom of speech because it will produce greater freedom. The height or the noblest expression of freedom of speech is political speech. It is an appeal to the public mind. It is an appeal to the reason of fellow citizens so that by collective deliberation that, yes, will involve diversity of viewpoints, disagreements, maybe even heated arguments, but not blows, physical, not fisticuffs. Uh, but the whole point of speaking is so that one could be heard to the point of persuasion. And that's why we know now, oh, that's why we are against self-censorship, the intimidation that leads to that. That's why we're against the heckler's veto. We're not against protest. After all, protest is precisely the pinnacle of free speech when authoritative opinion, the opinion held by those who are already in power, is wrong, or at least there is a perception among the ruled that they're not doing the things in their best interest, and perhaps a different way should be the rule of law. We are entirely in favor. If you're in favor of free speech, yes, you're also in favor of protest, but the protest cannot take the form of mobs appearing, uh, crowds appearing at a scheduled speaker's talk to shout that speaker down, to shout a speaker down is not an appeal to reason. It is an appeal to intimidation. It's expression of intimidation. It is verbal bullying. It is cowing someone. It is not persuading him or her. It is compelling him to stop talking so that only one opinion is expressed. It actually privileges the opinion of the mob. It is the direct opposite of reason. Douglas's plea for free speech was meant not just for the people of Boston. It was for the whole nation, broken and fragile as it was. Delivered then to a few, his warning about the importance of free speech in a democratic society has become an example for us all to look to, learn from, and aspire towards. His remarks came in the twilight of antebellum America, where free speech and the free press were routinely censored by powerful Southerners who wished to squash any sentiment of freedom for the enslaved. Less than two weeks after Douglas's speech, South Carolina would secede from the Union. Ten other states would follow in the coming months, and the battle for human freedom would step out from behind the lectern and the printing press, and into the farmlands and forests of Pennsylvania, Virginia, and Georgia. For many, civil liberties would become a casualty 
of the American Civil War. Swing As we've discovered throughout this episode, free speech and the free press were essential tools in the abolitionist campaign. When met with censorship, the likes of Frederick Douglass, John Quincy Adams, Angelina Grimke, and Lysander Spooner repelled it with greater, more impassioned, and more effective speech. In this era of political tension, the greatest weapons in the struggle to build a more perfect union were not bullets or bayonets, but novels, pamphlets, newspapers, petitions, and the impassioned words of those standing up for the freedom of others. The abolitionist struggle and their use of free speech to conquer oppression reminds us all that the story of America is the story of one people with many voices. Ooh.